Oh yes, hello friends, welcome back to the show. My guest today is none other than Greg McEwen, New York Times best-selling author of Essentialism, and today could be pretty life-changing. If you were in the right space to hear this, the message of Essentialism is one that has had quite a profound impact on the way that I see the world and operate within it. So if you ever feel busy but not productive, like you're overworked but underutilized, struggling with information overload and stretched too thin, this could be the antidote that you're looking for. Success breeds options and opportunities. And the problem with that is those options and opportunities often undermine the things which led to success in the first place. So today, Greg teaches us the art of essentialism, how not to fall into undisciplined pursuit of more, how to avoid the trivial many and instead focus our attention onto the vital few. This is a real antidote to the always shiny, novel, new, chasing that next thing uh, format that we all fall into, or at least I, I certainly have. Um, Greg's phenomenal. I really appreciate him coming on. And he has a brand new podcast, which is coming out very soon. If you enjoy the things that we talk about today, then you will love his new show. And the link to that to subscribe is available in the show notes below. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things that you used to do in a day are taking a week. You're drowning so much, you've now promoted your dog from company mascot to customer service representative. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025 and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, that is the 25th year anniversary of NetSuite. 25 years of helping businesses to do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system. With one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash modern. That's netsuite.com slash modern to get your own KPI checklist today. If you want more focus in your life, or if you find yourself dealing with an energy slump in the middle of the day where you just don't have the motivation to stay productive, fear not, because I do too which is why I spent more than a year creating the world's first productivity energy drink, Newtonic. Honestly, I'm so proud of this. I was involved in the design stage from the very beginning, and we made sure to only include the most heavily researched and evidence-based ingredients in the world at efficacious doses to create the most potent fuel for your focus ever made. It uses a science-backed formula of nootropic ingredients, including Cognizant for focus, Panax Ginseng to reduce distractions, and L-theanine to remove any jitters and keep you feeling great. We've got thousands of five-star reviews, and you can see exactly why by trying it for yourself right now with free next-day delivery on Amazon Prime in the UK and the USA. Simply head to newtonic.com slash modernwisdom. That's N-E-U-T-O-N-I-C dot com slash Modern Wisdom. But for now, it's time to listen to me get red-pilled on my own show about a blog I haven't even started yet by the wise and wonderful Greg McEwen.
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Greg McEwen, how are you, my friend? I'm wonderful. Nice to be with you. Nice to be with you as well. Could we have dressed any more polar opposite? <laughs> You've got this beautiful suit on, lovely press suit with a white shirt, and I am in a vest because it's the first hot day of May in Newcastle. Listen, that's what it is. That's the difference, is that I'm, I'm in California, so I've got no, no reason to celebrate well, I should celebrate, but this, uh, you know, beautiful weather, and that's, that explains it. It's a rarity, you know? And you know, no, anybody, all these people on the internet, I'm allowed to wear a vest if I want to wear a vest to podcast with Greg McEwen, you know? Yes. If there was an essentialist outfit for today, this, <laughs> this, would, be, this would be it. Um, so essentialism is the word of the day. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And I, I fear that I might be um, the, the arch nemesis of an essentialist or at least i was for for quite a long time so yeah okay why do you say that um so i have a very high desire for novelty i love new things Uh, one of my five core values is adventure which also pulls me toward that and another one is curiosity which pulls me toward that um i tend to work more than i need to uh i enjoy work i enjoy being busy i enjoy doing things and over time that has led to me adding an awful lot on my plate uh, and presuming that I will just be able to upregulate my productivity or downregulate my sleep to slot in these extra things. And the, to the audience at home, you will know this feeling, right? You will see from the front row seat, you will watch the slippage of your own terrible unproductive uh, unproductiveness right you'll see the the inefficiencies in your system firsthand and you think well i can add that that project in and all that will happen is i'll just have to get rid of those inefficiencies and you just presume that like a i don't know like a, like a system that the oil will be greased sufficiently more to allow it to go in and i learned i learned the hard way over a career of 13 years of running club nights and and being a dj and being a model and being a podcaster and doing a coaching and being a fitness and all this sort of stuff i realized that you can't you can't you can't do it all no who knew well i mean you knew actually which is (laughs) which is the question so why why don't you give us a bit of a background essentialism and sort of what you do in your your uh, approach to this Look, I was working with high-performing executives in Silicon Valley and noticed a predictable pattern, which is that in the early days, these uh, companies, they were really focused. That led to success. That success breeded options and opportunities, which, if you're not careful, can undermine the things that led to success in the first place. Uh, You fall into the undisciplined pursuit of more. So you're just doing too many things, and they may all be good things, but just too many different things get pulled a million different directions. And so you start to plateau in your progress or fail altogether. Uh, and, and as it turns out, this is a pattern that a lot of people, where you just said, just describes it a little bit, um, feel the same thing. So uh, as I've studied this, I find that almost universally people will feel stretched too thin at work or at home, uh, busy but not productive, uh, feel like their day's being hijacked by other people's agenda for them. So this is, this is like the problem that essentialism is seeking uh, to to address or solve. Yeah. Can you pronounce that German word for me, please? The, Which German the, word? The, le- less, yeah, the, the, less but 
better. Less but better. Yeah, typically you just do the English less but better. <laughs> I wondered if you wondered if it, it's quite an ugly word. Less oh, but oh, better. Oh, hold on, hold on. We're gonna find it here now. We're gonna we're gonna do this. Okay, cool. Right. Do you know what page it's on? I, I, I no, sorry, I'm kindling as well. So on a uh, yeah. On a so you, have, you, have, you have no idea. I love that you put that on me. I, look, yeah, Greg, yeah. I can't. I, well, I know for a fact that I can't pronounce that German word, and I thought, do you know what it is? See if Greg, see if Greg can pronounce it. You know? Yeah, and then you, you put put it all on me, and I can't even find it. Um, it's it's uh, it, here's here's what it is. While we're trying to find it, it's um, it comes from Dieter Rams is the one that at least is credited with having made this idea, and uh, and and it, 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 he's he's the I can't find it now. It's fine. It doesn't matter. We couldn't. We, we're not going to be able to pronounce it in any case. Even if we do, we'll just garble <laughs> the words and, and probably should it. just move on. The, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's uh, he's he's this amazing designer who was the first person to see one of the first people to see how rubbish it was the way that we were designing a whole bunch of furniture. So he's working over at Braun, and he has this insight. He says. Um, I mean, let's give an example of this. At the time, if you wanted to buy a record player, the first record players did not look like the record players that, you know, that if you think of that right now, you know what that looks like. They didn't look like that. They looked like massive pieces of furniture, you know, because it, it takes a while for people to lose the old in any design. And so, and so as soon as you're creating record players, they say, well, it has to look like a piece of furniture. It has to look like a closet sort of thing. And so he was the one that said, no, hold on. We get rid of the closet. We'll just have the record player. And at first, when he designed that, people actually, they were a little hesitant about it. They thought, well, this is, this is, they, they described it as like a glass coffin, like Snow White's coffin or something. It was so pristine and simple and clear. But what's interesting is that forever afterwards, every design of every record player looked like his because he'd stripped away all the, non-essential stuff and he'd said this is this is how it needs to be and he did that for many many products over 35 years he summarized everything he'd learned into those three words uh less but better i love less but better it is it is phenomenal so people that are listening and we've mentioned essentialism we've said less but better in this chaotic how can people self-diagnose if they're a non-essentialist look the, the 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 questions i already put I think are the simplest questions, right? Like, have you ever found yourself busy but not productive? Yes or no? Have you ever found yourself stretched too thin at work or at home or both? Uh, you know, have you ever felt like your day is being hijacked by other people's agenda for you? Are you trying to do too many things and ending up doing them averagely well? Have you ever found yourself making just a millimeter progress in many, many different directions. Someone who says yes to any of the above, especially if you say yes to all of the above, <laughs> yeah, pretty good chance, you know, you're operating more as a non-essentialist than an essentialist currently. Uh, I mean, the good news about all of this is that it's people are completely redeemable. This is the reason that people are non-essentialists. There's a few, but the primary reason is because they didn't know they were choosing that. They didn't know there was an alternative. They didn't wake up in the morning. I just want to be a non-essentialist. <laughs> you know, I just want to do too many things in too yeah. many different directions. Yeah. They just, they just woke. They just lived in a world that happens to emphasize that. 
happens to pursue too many different things and they just went along with everybody else. And and so the, the awakening is where you say, oh, hold on, there are a group of people who aren't operating like that. And the, the, the results they get are extraordinary. They're able to produce far, far better results at a lower stress level. So they can break through to a higher point of contribution and enjoy the process at the same time. These are the essentialists. And so, uh, and so learning that is uh, is 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 a big moment. It's a big change in mindset, and therefore you can change your life quite quickly afterwards. Yeah, I think there's there's two uh, main realizations I had when I was reflecting on that particular area of your work, and one of them was, um, to me, busyness was inbuilt into life. And you're right, I didn't know that there was an alternative. I was like, well, this is just what life is. You know, yes. life is just, life just happens to go a million miles an hour, uh, in, 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 uh, across the galaxy. And I it's need the default to, setting. yeah, yeah. That's what, that's what you, your entry level. Uh, and the other, the other thing was, um, it gave me, especially as a younger businessman, it gave me a, a sense of accomplishment, you know, it made me feel important. It made me feel like I was doing things, um, because and it was impressive low key it was impressive for me to so for people to say what do you do and for me to have a laundry list and be like so what do you do well it's an interesting question actually i hope you've got about 10 minutes so i do the modeling i do the podcast oh, i've been on reality tv and i do the this thing and i do the that thing and i do you know you've got this big list so those are the two things i was like i didn't know there was an alternative and uh, it made me feel important and, and, and busy and, and valued. And I'd wager a lot of other people feel like that as well. Yeah, and that, that right there is interesting. This idea of, of it being important, that busyness somehow has come to equal importance, is not, an, it's not a, a necessary human condition or understanding, but it does seem to be this current culture's understanding. And so, I mean, I remember talking to a woman one time and I was asking, yeah, I said, how are you? And she said, oh, I'm so busy. She said, I'm so busy. Greg, I tell you, I've slept on average four hours a night for the last two weeks. That's how busy I am, you know. And she's smiling. I mean, first of all, why is she smiling? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, 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 and what she, I, she didn't say this, but what I think she was saying was, look, I hate to break it to you, Greg. I'm just a little more important than you are. <laughs> yeah. You know, you get to sleep a normal night's rest, but I am under so much demand. You, you see, mere that's mortal. How, mere, exactly. That's how important I am. And she didn't know, of course, that she was right, you know, speaking to, um, well, to an aspiring essentialist, you know. So she didn't know that this was not, this is not impressive to me. This is not an achievement to me. And so it was. It led to a very genuinely friendly conversation. And a couple of weeks after that, she came back to me and said, okay, my goodness, I have like completely stripped away the way I was doing it, sleeping properly. I've like made prioritized decisions about what I actually want to go after and don't. And I feel this increase of productivity, right? My stress is going down. My productivity is going up. Like this is the value proposition of essentialism. And, and and it's in that story. There's also the nonsense of non-essentialism. What a, what a con that it is! <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's a Ray Dalio quote that felt like it should have been in essentialism. Yeah, um, and it says, 
a truth in this life is that you can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. Yeah. And accepting that, genuinely, truly, not just going, yeah, yeah, sounds good, sounds, 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 sounds nice, mate. But I'm gonna get, I'll get, I'll get the other thing after I've had this thing. So I'll have this anything, then I'll have the next anything, and you know that that's the everything mentality. Yeah. Um, and uh, I wonder how much of this comes from people not knowing what they want in life. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it comes from people. It comes from people not taking the time to explore that. You know, they're just they're just going along, and the busyness begets busyness, and that's what everyone else is doing. And so they just they, they it actually in a way it, they're not having to make any decisions. They're just doing what everybody else is doing. Well, they're doing that. What are my next door neighbors doing? It. I mean, it used to be just you know keeping up with the Joneses, but now of course it's social media keeping up the Joneses, which is a, a much different challenge, right? You're you're getting to compare yourself to everybody's best possible version of themselves, basically, sort of a form of lying, uh, you know, because it's so curated and different than the rest of their life, and you're comparing yourself against the best of everybody's. <laughs> So this is really like a recipe for for non-essentialism. Uh, you know, it's not just opinion overload. I mean, rather, it's not information overload. It is opinion overload. We're just getting crammed with all this stuff. And so our job is to try and push all of that away and get quiet and ask what, not just even what do I want, although that's not bad. So what am I supposed to do? What What is... What is my mission? What is the thing I came here to do? What 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 am I what would I come here to do? That that is a that is a completely different kind of question. And as you start to explore that, you find that you already have more answers than you realize. But it comes from inside of you instead of just from all this outside stuff. And you can start to have quite instead of the fear of missing out or FOMO, you start to have the joy of missing out, right? Or JOMO. Um, <laughs> Wasn't she a singer? Well, yeah. <laughs> no, and, that was, was that Dido? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yes, I think you're probably right. But Jomo is, uh, it ought to be a singer, but we ought to make a song to it. You can do that. But Jomo is, uh, you know, this, you discover that just because other people do, in fact, you like not doing things that other people are doing. You start to go, yeah, that's great for you. You can celebrate it for them, but that's not what I'm doing. That's what I'm about. That's not what I'm supposed to be doing in my life. And you start to feel this joy and momentum in doing, as I keep saying, what you came here to do. Before we get on to I want to ask the question, which is how do we do that? What are the steps that we can take toward identifying that and getting rid of the trivial many? But <clears throat> that deprogramming, right, of the existing societal norms, the paths of least resistance, your genetic predisposition, your traumas and the coping mechanisms you've got with that is something I'm swimming in at the moment. And I've got an amazing blog post that I'm going to send to you after we've finished. And I know that I've just completely teased that to everyone that's listening. However, the author of the blog post is going to come on the podcast in the next couple of weeks. So I've got a big announcement about that. And it's phenomenal. Just some fella, but wrote the best thing I've read on the internet this year. Uh, and one of the things that he was talking about there was about sort of deprogramming these societal norms and getting rid of all that stuff. And um, that FOMO versus JOMO uh, paradigm that you've just come up with there, to me, is present in a lot of different areas of life. So, for instance, 
as soon as you see discomfort in training, physical training, as something to actually lean into, as something that is a signal that you're doing something right, as opposed to a signal that you're doing something wrong. But it takes time to program yourself. You go into the gym for the first time and you do a, a difficult workout and you feel like you're going to die. You know, you're <laughs> on the floor and you want to throw up and you're sweating and your knees hurt and all this stuff happens. And there's some very real physical adaptations that need to happen before you can go like fully in. But once those have occurred, and presuming you're doing it safely, the discomfort is the signal of progress, right? And it's kind of the only way you can do that is by learning, oh, hang on, this is me moving forward. This is me doing the right thing. And the the JOMO, as it seems, the joy of missing out, again, is that it's like, oh, I'm missing out. That's fantastic. That means that I'm focusing on what I should be focusing on. I'm not getting swept away with the the trivial many. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right to think about those signals that will be new signals so that when other people are zigging, you're zagging. Uh, you, you know, when other people are saying yes, you're saying no. When other people are saying no, you're saying yes because you're trying to, you're, you're not trying to be like everybody else anymore. Yeah, you, you, you can't be distinctive at everything. <laughs> Such a good quote. No, you you are very very right. Uh, okay, so how do we do it? Where do we start? You've got me, Greg. I'm here. I'm a nightmare. I'm doing too much. How do I start to bring order to chaos? Okay, so you're asking that question in like still a hypothetical way, um, or you could be. Uh, so but we could do it in a literal way, right? So we'll just do it with you right now. I mean. You game? Okay, so tell me, first thought, what is something that's essential to you? It's very important to you, but you're uh, under-investing in it currently. You might be doing something, but you're under-investing. Go. First thoughts. Writing. Okay. Um, wh- wh- what, uh, what does success look like for you in writing? One new article per week. Um, and uh, that you're putting out in your blog to your to your newsletter. That's what you want to do. Uh, how are you doing it right now? How, how much are you managing to do currently? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. So good. It is an underinvestment. I, We've told, I, I warned you that I was a pretty no, good avatar for this. No, I like it. I like your honesty very much. Um, okay, so there's, so it's, so that when you say you're not you're not publishing any, you are not doing any writing at all. So I've been I've been gesticulating over the the font size of the website and and the the tiny little things that I know is really a glorified version of procrastination to put me off from actually putting in hard work. I have six half-finished articles, all of which require two hours of focused work to be really good, and I really like them. Um, yes. But I, there's just six half-finished meals, and they're all in the, yep. ki- and they're all in the kitchen. Yeah, I like it. Uh, well, um, I like how practical that example is. I, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Okay, so how long have you been doing those six and a half articles? How long have they been sort of sitting there getting cold? Probably since the beginning of lockdown. That's maybe a... Maybe a, a yeah, okay. So a couple of months. Yeah, yeah. You, you started working on them then? Started working on one and then did a bit. And then I would go, oh, that's a bit, that's enough for today. And then when I came back, I'd go, I'd go do something else. I got a podcast to do or I got a business call or I got training yep. or I got, you know, life. Yep. Come back, 
start a new one. I won't, I'll, that one's already, it's kind of done. I'll just, I'll do a new one. Does, uh, the, the, that illusion, sorry, allure of novelty again gets me in. Oh, new, new, gotcha. new, new idea. Yeah, you, you, you're more excited to start the thing than to finish the thing. That's, yes, that's it. Okay, so, so tell me, tell me one of those articles. What, what's just one of them that you, what's the first one you worked on, in fact? 10 things I learned from speaking to the smartest people on the planet for 200 hours. Yeah, okay, well, that's, good. that's a good title. Um, you heard it here okay. first, ladies and gentlemen. Greg McEwen says that the title of my articles is good. <laughs> of course it is. That's, that's, uh, you're well on your way with that. Okay, so what is the minimum number of – what is the minimum amount of work that needs to be done to the article in its current format before you can put it out? Uh, not, I, don't, I don't even know, which is embarrassing. It's because like, you haven't done it. All te- yeah. All ten, all ten things are done. Each of the common themes, they're kind of fleshed out. A proof, a proofread. It's the unsexy stuff. Go back through, proofread it. Make sure that I haven't used too much hyperbole. Check if ah, oh, well, there's one concept I'm not really too sure if that should be in. And I'm, I think part of me is scared as well that when I reopen that Pandora's box, at the moment it's I know it's not done, but it is closed. And when I reopen that, I get reminded of the fact that it's still going. Does that make sense? Well, it's an interesting point you're saying. Uh, uh, you're saying that in its unfinished, closed position, it feels a sort of done. Yeah. That's very interesting, right? You're, you're saying, like, stopping working on something has a feeling of closure, even the, the though finishing it can't satisfy it's, 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 it, that is officially undone <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. that is i can check that off that has been <laughs> this has been formally procrastinated yeah check that's, that's it that is hit the well done the yes. move on the next one let's quickly get the next article into the same formal, finished position formalized procrastinated Woo! You are working through these at a storm. Okay, so what is st- what is really stopping you from publishing an article? Um, so I think it's publishing the article is a perfectionist trap, a little bit that I'm like I I feel like there's a little bit of pressure. You know, I have a bunch of friends who are all very competent at writing online, and I think right, I need, it needs to be like fucking war and peace. Um, and then, uh, another bit of it's just the, the, the working process of writing isn't yet coming as easily to me as podcasting is. I've never procrastinated on podcasting, never once, because mm-hmm. it feels like a high calling. It's something which comes to me incredibly naturally. There's also a very interesting way that, that the format pulls you through because it's like a treadmill. You know, you don't actually have to overcome your own inertia to do a podcast. I can't now stop talking to you and just give up halfway. I mean, I could, but it'd be really it'd be weird. weird. It'd be really weird if I now stopped talking. Uh, so you've got some externalized accountability. You've got some motivation from the person that you're speaking to. Um, so I think that the the nature of, of a conversation is, is quite different, um, which is also why book clubs and stuff are successful, I suppose, that they give you that external accountability to keep you moving through something and get over your own inertia. 
Yes, so you need to choose a day that your podcast goes out no matter what. Right, three you just have days, your... three days a week at the moment, Greg. We are doing three episodes a week. It's no, three. but I mean, I mean, with your plot, with your blog. Yes. Okay. Yes. Article. I mean, having a set date where you say, okay, uh, I, you know, it goes out on. Well, choose your day. What's your date? May eighteenth. All right, May eighteenth, and then every week after that, you put out a blog. Correct. Now, your body language when I said that was like so non-committal. You, you, you were giving. You were <laughs> I knew giving I should have turned the camera off. Like, I knew I like, should have turned the fucking Inside, you were like, no, I am absolutely not committing to doing that. I'll say I am here because it would be awkward not to in the middle of this podcast, but there's no way I'm doing that. That's what I heard from you. Maybe. Am I wrong? Maybe. No. I, yeah. I, look, I, the, the, the thing in for everyone that's listening, you are hearing and watching and feeling me go through the turmoil of something that I think we all experience, which is I want to do a thing. I genuinely do, or else I wouldn't have started it. I wouldn't have spent my time. I wouldn't have, have, have started learning about the process of writing and spoken to people and stuff. Um, but there's something. There's something that's happening with that that's getting in the way. And there are so many still now, having started to strip back as much as I can and focus on the, the um, get rid of the trivial many and focus on the vital few. There's still a lot of things pulling on my time uh, and the urgent gets in the way of the important a lot, um, which is a nightmare. Yeah. Well, you're doing three, three podcasts a week. You know, you could say, okay, for until I publish my first article, I'm only doing two a week. I'm not allowed to do the third until I get my first out. That would that would help the podcast momentum lean help you you know keep you accountable towards this new trade off. Uh, look, I think that I think what's at the heart of the matter for you with this is that you want the first article to be of the same quality as the other writers that you admire and have read their work from. That's what I think this is about. And I want to encourage you to have the courage to be rubbish. <laughs> to, to just go, success is posting that first podcast, first blog. And, and here's how I would recommend you do it. I would recommend that you send it to your list as a link to your blog rather than the whole content is in the email, right? And here's why. Because if you do it that way, you can keep updating it as you need to. Right. So the first version you send out on the day you send that link doesn't have to be the permanent state of that article. That is just how it is now. And own it right there in the, in the email you send out to everybody. You just say, I assume that's how you're sending it to people. Is that how you're going to get, send it out to everyone? Combination of that and sending it through social media and stuff like that. Links. So, same thing. You just have the link to be somewhere where you can keep editing it over time. I'll tell you something that happened to me that's similar to this. I once wrote at like late at night a very rubbish <laughs> piece on LinkedIn. They'd asked me to be an influencer on LinkedIn. And it was. It was rubbish. And I just was new to that platform. It was the time it was a brand new platform that they were using and they said, um, and, and so I, I post this thing, the number one career mistake capable people make. That's the title I came up with, post it. And uh, the next morning when I wake up, 60,000 people have viewed it. And there's a ton of comments and a ton of criticism. 
it wasn't all negative, but I had just written this like, you know, just sort of two, three paragraphs. And I like jumped in and started editing it immediately and improved it and improved it. A couple of million people read that too, maybe, maybe more than that in the end. Wow. Uh, it was like, it, it was a relatively viral piece at the time. And it was so encouraging that, okay, so it started off as this piece, but we were able to improve it as we went. Now, that's not necessarily how you always want it to be, but you have to get over the hump here. So you have to lower the hump that you're trying to get over. This mental hump of it has to be fantastic or I can't put it out. Put something out. It's, 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 it's a smaller amount. It isn't going to be perfect. I don't even know what that would mean, a perfect article. But you will get feedback and you will learn and you'll be in the same mode before we started this idea. What did you say? Uh, I can't find the name. The, 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 the skill takeoff yeah. and that sensation of the skill takeoff. And so maybe what you say is I'm going to, I'm just going to publish. Maybe you say I'm going to publish all. Yeah, I don't know. And so I am trying to encourage you to, to and here's, here's really my, probably my biggest insight since writing essentialism oh. is that, is that, uh, <laughs> is that people, people, what, uh, the, there's a piece of feedback people often give. It's not the most common feedback but it is regular enough that i definitely noted it and it is where they'll say oh yeah it's hard isn't it essentialism though it's hard that focusing on what's essential and and not on what's non-essential it has to you know and in fact somebody once said to me they say look you know essentialism should come with a warning this will be the hardest thing that you will ever do and for like a year or two i absorbed that title that that like line and would share that with people well the thing the problem with essentialism is the hardest thing you'll ever do what a con that is. That's a totally non-essentialist idea. It's a completely wrong. It's only, it's only the harder thing to do because you're a non-essentialist trying to be an essentialist. Like you're, you're trying to be an essentialist in a non-essentialist way. You're like, I have to do this perfectly. I have to do everything <laughs> yeah. essential right now. This is not what essentialism is about. I think there's a way to do essentialism that's so easy. And that's what we need to do. Let's cut away all these layers of to get in the way of you actually publishing what you've written. You don't need the fancy website. You don't need the article to be perfect, whatever that means. You don't even have to have 10 of them. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just needs to be published. <laughs> and then the feedback will come. And then you'll learn something. And then you can progress to the next step. You've got, you've got to have this. And this is only a couple of the things one can do to make them easier. But, but that is my primary learning since essentialism was written. That's a very cool way to look at it. And I've seen and heard other people as well say the challenge of the disciplined pursuit of less, you know, especially I think relinquishing, relinquishing your hand on novelty is something that I want to get into in a second because, I, you know, for the people out there who similarly to me like adventure, like new things, new experiences, it just leads to yeses all over the place. Just because you think, well, that's interesting. Oh, well, that's interesting. Well, that could be fun. Well, that could be fun. Well, oh, I could, I could do that. And then you, you post hoc rationalize it, right? You, the way, this, is the, this is the most fucking insidious way that you post hoc rationalize it, all the non-essentialists listening, which is everybody. Most... The most insidious way that you um, rationalize doing too much is by hedging your risk. That's the most insidious way because it's got a kernel of truth in it. 
it's got a kernel of truth in it that if you were to do two things instead of one, you half your risk if that one thing goes shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But you then take it to, well, if I do 100 things and one of them goes to shit, that's only 1%. Yeah. And you don't realize that the price that you pay for doing 100 things is that you've only gone one unit of distance over 100 things as opposed to 100 units of distance over one thing. Yeah, that's right. And it also, the other faulty, the, the other false assumption in that is the idea that all opportunities, all a- actions uh, are randomly, like success is randomly assigned to those 100. Right? Like if you, ne- if you couldn't understand any cause and effect between anything, you might be best to just do 100 things and you only make an inch progress in all of them, but at least you'll make an inch progress in one thing that's going to work because it's totally random. That's fine. So you want to believe life is completely random. Fine, you go, you live that one out and see how that works for you, right? But on the basis that, and this is the first principle of essentialism, is to explore what's essential, right? It's to actually create space looking for the thing you feel really good about pursuing, the thing that you feel you're best built to do. Uh, and, 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 so, and so in that process, you come to a point of view that says, I'm, I'm built to do this and not to do that, so I'm going to go strong on the thing that I am good at, passionate about, that I think is relevant right now. I mean, all of those things are risk mitigation techniques so that you can then lean into something fully that you're actually, you know, is your highest point of contribution. One of the things for me about that is writing. I mean, there's so many career paths I would have been rubbish at (laughs) and failed at in a sort of capital F way, right? Like just not, that just wouldn't have worked well. I I went big on something, not because I was high, like not, not because I had a high tolerance for risk, because I'm actually quite risk averse and I wanted to do things that I really felt strong and good at and so on. And I think that's what we have to do. You have to, yeah, instead of thinking it's all random, you take the time to explore, figure out what you really can make a great contribution in and then go big in it. What about someone that says, well, I'm not great at anything? Yeah, so you can start with... I mean, you know, what we're talking about here is criteria, right? What criteria to use to evaluate what to do. And you start off with maybe like, well, what are the things I have no interest in? Well, don't do that stuff. Fishing. If you don't like fishing, don't do fishing, right? It's because your mates are doing fishing. I mean, you have to go fishing. Right. I have lots of people who love skiing. I always feel this guilt, like I need to do, I've got to go skiing. Of course, if you go skiing, you ought to be able to go skiing. You know, it's such a fan, fabulous. Jonathan's love the snow. You love it. You would love it. Yeah. You would love it up there. This is all, you always feel this. And I'm like, no, I'm not interested. <laughs> not interested. So start with the stuff you're not interested in. Start with the stuff that you go, yeah, I, not only am I not good at that, I could not imagine ever being good at that. That is not my thing so you just start at the at the extremes right the periphery and move forward so you don't have to say what am i great at but you can say what am i interested in what do i think i might have a little bit of talent for uh you know you <laughs> you look on like you know uh, 
Britain's Got Talent or whatever the talent show is, and you see these people in these that are just terrible at that thing. They've got high passion, really low talent for it. And you feel for those people, right? Uh, or you wonder why they don't understand it. What we're looking for is things that have you feel some passion for, that you think you might be quite good at, that you think you could become good at it, that uh, meets a need in the world, and that overlap, that's where your highest point of contribution can lie. Uh, and then over time, you're developing that more and more narrowly so that over time, as your competency increases, you aren't just interested in doing the things you're good at. You are looking for the thing you would be the best at, really great at. Eventually, down the journey, it's like, could I be the best in the world at this thing? You know, maybe, maybe maybe there's just a tiny group of people who can do this thing, uh, but that's that's a that, you know that's a, you increase your selectivity as your competence increases. Mm, I like the idea of using inversion and a contrasting effect to work out where you don't go. Um, <clears throat> it's the same for the easiest way to avoid being depressed is to work out not what makes you happy, but how you would make a happy person depressed. I would fuck yeah. up with their sleep. I'd fuck up with their nutrition. I'd make sure they didn't get any daylight. I'd, you know, do all of the different bits and pieces. <clears throat> and you're like, oh yeah, well that makes a happy person depressed. And you go, right, okay. What's the, what's the, what's the implication of that? Um, it's also funny that that's, as you were saying about the different things, that sounded to me like a hell no. It's like, would you go, would you go fishing? Hell no. Would you go skiing? <laughs> hell no. And as past modern wisdom guest and good buddy Derek Sivers says, it's either hell yes or no. And that ties into something I actually wanted you to run us through, which is the, the 90% rule. Do you take us through that? Yeah. So you imagine, a, you know, everything, every option that you have on, on a, that could be plotted on a, a continuum from zero to 100. And it's an importance continuum. So on an importance continuum, a zero is it's totally unimportant and 100 is completely important absolutely essential right so everything you know whether it's writing this article that you just talked about or exercise or doing the next podcast uh, reading uh, going on youtube like or every activity can be plotted on this continuum and what i'm encouraging people to do is to say anything that is underneath 90% anything that's lower than 90% important you question and maybe even eliminate. You're looking for just the things that are 90% or above essential, vitally important relationships, you know, absolutely must do before I die projects, uh, you know, habits that I know will make the rest of my life significantly improved and different, might even make a difference for my children and grandchildren. You're looking for those things. Because every time you do something that's below 90%, you're taking it away from something that is 90% or above. You're making a trade-off. People don't really know about that. They don't see it that way often. So they just think, well, is this good? Uh, well, good might be 40, it might be 40% important, 30% important. Yeah, it's good. It's fine. It's fine. Nothing wrong with doing that. But they don't aware that they're taking it away from the thing that is absolutely vital. So I'm always encouraging people, like, like, look at the extremes, look at the things that are 90% important and invest there, look at the stuff that's below 10% and just eliminate there. Make the trade-off between the two so that you can actually 
go further faster on the things that matter. I think what some people may be concerned about is that sounds like a very totalitarian, disciplined life. Right? Well, I'm not allowed to have cake because cake isn't contributing to my highest sense of importance. And I, I used to like YouTube, but Greg and Chris told me that YouTube's only, that I really, I looked at the importance of that and that's only 30%. So now I've got to delete the YouTube app and now I just feel like I'm this kind of robot that's sort of rolling through life. So how do people find that balance between turning it on and turning it off of having the focus on the essential few whilst being able to give us enough kind of leeway to 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 live a life that doesn't feel like it's completely under under super control all the time well what it sounds like you just said is that freedom creativity exploration is really important to you that wasn't me that's I'm I'm all right without cake. I love it. I love me a bit of cake, but right now it's summertime. You know, you're just saying other people might find what we described as being really stringent. All, all I'm saying is that if if somebody feels that something important to them is probably being violated, so they haven't got their list right yet. When you're working on the ninety percent and above, you're not you're not feeling rigid and controlled. You're feeling free, and liberated from all this nonsense that you don't value that's keeping you back from living the things you actually do want. So there's a lot of joy. There's more joy in the 90% and above than there is probably in the rest of the 90% combined. When, when, when I'm working on something that's meaningful to me, that's inspiring to me, I mean, I'll give you an example just this week. So, <clears throat> so it, was, uh, it was doing, uh, you know, having an, an evening with my children, my wife, and uh, and we were doing s'mores, which I, mean, I don't even know if you want to know what s'mores are. S'mores, s'mores, s'mores yeah, yeah. is, I mean, even without the wife and the children, the s'mores on their own would be in the ninety percent for me. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so uh, so we so we just spent the evening doing that outside over a fire together, enjoying that time. That was a ninety percent or above for me. That's not stringent and rigid. That's playfulness and and joyfulness. And it's way better than me just sort of going, okay, I'll just uh, I'll just scan social media and just be on my own infinite scanning on that in some room somewhere. Like th that's what we're talking about. We're saying get rid of all that stuff that doesn't feed you, that isn't joyful, that isn't that isn't taking you forward. Uh, and and so I think that there's a bit of creativity and imagination as to what really matters for people to have a good vision of this. Yeah, it's interesting with time, isn't it? The way that time works, because it's it's the only thing you can't choose to not spend. Like, you can't not spend time. You can choose to not spend your money, and it's the, the mad thing about people that are able to get in shape or the people that are able to accumulate wealth. Like, they, they do that by having an asymmetry between what they bring in and what they put out. Yeah. There isn't an equivalent with time. Yeah, there's no time bank. You can't say today I'm going to just take half of this time. I don't know what to do with it, so I'll put it over there. Wait while I figure this out. <laughs> right? It's being spent at exactly the same rate all of the time, no matter what. It's more like a, it's more like a conveyor belt going past, and that, that that that's moving no matter what you use it for. So it's 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 present. Yeah, what you're saying is true. There's a quote from Naval Ravikant that I've been playing around with recently, which is, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. 
Yeah. And um, <laughs> what does that mean to you? So it's meant a lot. I've spent a lot of time thinking about these little uh, that as an aphorism. Um, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. To me, means what is the what would be winning the thing that you're doing right now. So, for instance, what would be winning? Always replying to an Instagram DM message within thirty minutes, all day, every day. What's what's the what's the prize? Play a stupid game, win a stupid prize. A stupid prize doesn't exist. It's the satisfying of some people who wouldn't have cared if you'd waited a week to reply to them, who maybe you're never going to see again, who you've maybe never met. Um, play another stupid game if you want to take it to a, a kind of a little bit more vicious degree. Play a stupid game, which would be have unprotected sex with someone that you don't know after a night out. That is playing a very stupid game. What's the prize that you win for that when you compare it with the alternative of having protected sex? What would be play a stupid game of texting while you drive as opposed to waiting until you get to your destination. That's a very stupid game to play when you win a stupid prize. What's the prize? It's, oh, well, the lads in the group chat got that meme off me a little bit quicker than if I'd waited and I got to have a little bit of a giggle at the lights as opposed to sit and look out the window or whatever it is. Um, play stupid games, win stupid prizes, slots into essentialism somehow for me. Yeah, well, I think that's right because I remember working with a uh with maybe like 50 of the top leaders from uh from american industry and as i walked into the room it's a very it was a very sort of dark oak room it was this very secretive meeting actually it was quite interesting i mean it wasn't there was nothing bad being done there but it was just like very kind of elite feeling as you walked into the room and I liked, every, I liked all the people I talked with there, but the, the, the overwhelming sensation I had in that room was here is a group of people that won at the wrong game. What's that mean? Well, one of them was vulnerable at one point and just said, look, my relationship with my teenager is completely shot right now. It is almost ready to leave the house and my, I just don't have a relationship with him. It's like, so it's everything's rough between us. And so here he is, he's, he's got up the corporate ladder but he's won at a game that now he realizes didn't matter or certainly didn't matter in comparison to these relationships that he's taken for granted over those same years. And so I just think there's many of the prizes that people think are the most important things. So I don't mean the total trivia. I think there's many goals people set that that actually if they were if they spent a little longer pondering them and thinking about them they would find that's the wrong game i i, I won at the wrong thing I, got, I i achieved it i got there but then it was like you know uh it, it was it was unsatisfying when i actually arrived there that wasn't what it was actually that is not what the it, it, it was unsatisfying achievement that's what I mean by it. And that's where the explore before you exploit uh, importance comes in at the beginning of, of looking at your options, of assessing the things that you want. Yes, and there's, there's a few ways of thinking about exploration, right? One is, one is just intellectually, here are my options, let me evaluate the options in front of me. A second way of thinking about it is what I think one's highest priority is, which is to protect our ability to prioritize. 
protect our ability to discern. Yeah, all of us have many, many non-essential voices outside of us and inside of us, right? Just all different, a mind just telling us a million things, oh, you're going to do this and that matters and how, look how you compare to that person and look at com- competitions and comparisons and complaining voices and all these voices, right? There's all of this noise. And then there's another voice. Uh, one of my friends uh, in England says it this way. He says, he says there's, there's, lot, there's a scared voice and then there's a sacred voice. My distinction would be, I think there's many, many scared voices and one sacred voice, right? And we all know that other voice, I think. I think almost all of us have experienced it where we just go, that's right, that's wrong. And you just know. And nobody else had to tell it to you. You didn't, you didn't learn it from someone. You just, you just know that's the right thing to do in this moment. That's the wrong thing to do in this moment. And if we are quiet enough, that voice becomes the voice that leads us. So exploring what is essential to me at its highest manifestation means tuning into, amplifying that voice of conscience that really guides you in the right direction. If you do that today in small ways, you don't wake up 20 years from now and go, oh my goodness, I just, I've just given myself 20 years to the wrong goal. That's what I think it means. That's scary. You know, the, I tweeted something. I can't even remember where I found it, but it stuck with me for years. I tweeted this the other day. True hell is when the person you are meets the person you could have been. Yeah, that's, I, I, you know, I like, I like that sentiment. It is a bit scary, like you say. Um, I, I want, I want, I'll give you a story. So I was, um, I was staring at myself in the mirror, um, dressed from head to toe in a stormtrooper costume. Good luck. It's good luck. <laughs> well, it was a moment. That's certainly what it was. And I was thinking about buying it. This was like a, you know, pretty close to movie level quality suit. Right. And I'm in my, I'm in like late 30s looking at myself in this mirror. And I look, it, it was for Halloween, right? And it, I still kind of, I think I get why I thought that was a cool thing, why it might have been a fun idea. But as I'm staring at the mirror, I, I'm struck by two things completely at the same time. One is there's not one part of me that wants this anymore, right? Like, why am I even thinking about it? I do not want that. I do not want this. And the second, in the same moment, I realized that for 30 years, I've had in my mind the idea that one day I would buy this. Because 30 years previously, that's when Return of the Jedi had come out, and my older brother, one of my older brothers had said to me, wouldn't it be so cool to own like a costume right from you know, from the movies, like movie-level quality costume stuff. And my little, like, young self, influenced by my brother saying this, just it just, like, caught on. And that little goal stuck with me for all of those years. Now, this is the power of goals. We get that. Goals are really powerful. They're, they're, one of my professors once said, they're the theory that works. But what he was saying is that they work too well. Once you have a goal, you can get on autopilot and now you're racing down some path to get something that really you didn't stop to question. So what I'm saying here is be careful that some of the goals that we set aren't storm. Are they stormtroopers? 
You know, should we just have eliminated them already? Can we give up on them halfway? Because we go, no, that doesn't even matter. Someone else wanted to do that. Schwarzenegger wanted to do that. I don't have to do that. <laughs> you, you know, just because The Rock's doing it doesn't mean I have to do it. <laughs> yeah. The Rock is cool. I um, I absolutely love that. I had Tucker Max on, and he is a man who has gone through about as big of a 180 as you can imagine from this, uh, what, did, what was it called? Uh, frat, frat literacy or something. He created an entire new literary genre, which was like party boy party boy stories type thing <clears throat> and he uh he'd gone through this big th- and then he's done a decade of psychotherapy and <laughs> a, a ton of internal work and this guy is so so fucking aware now and just completely present speaking his truth forward just stripping away ego left right and center really really delivering uh, he's phenomenal i love the person he is now i would have hated the guy that he was back then but i love the person he is now and um, you see when someone makes such a change like that and you've got these weird like epochs in your life, right? You've got like the the kid, then the teenager, then like the young kind of 20s, then like the mid-20s, then the, you know, da 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 And um, it takes a lot of work, you know? It takes a lot of work to realize that you thought that having a faster car than your mates when you were 19 was a big deal. But now you're 32 and your wife loves you and you've got two kids and a dog that you care about. And because you never questioned whether or not still having a faster, bigger, better car was, it's just, it's like, it's just there. It's just a modus operandi, right? And it's just running below you and you kind of don't really realize and the stream just takes you along. I absolutely love, I love that concept. You touched on something actually that I had, I had in my notes I wanted to bring up, which is why is it so hard to cut losses? Is it just sunk cost fallacy? Is it just, ah, oh, well, I've, I've, I've got this far with, the huge tech company, which is destroying my relationship with my teenager, uh, I might as well. I might as well go all the way. Is that why people have a fear? Or is there anything else? Yeah, because you you you're having to face the potentially poor decision of not having cut it off yesterday or the day before, <laughs> the day before that, and so you're more. The longer it goes, the harder it is to admit that we weren't wise in the previous scenario. Uh, and so, and so, yes, of course, we we want to. Well, you've heard the old metaphor, right? Of the the how do you catch a monkey? Right? You've heard this, right? How do you catch a monkey? You, 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 there's a trap, and you the monkey puts their hand in the trap. You never heard this. No. You put the monkey puts their hand in the trap, and and they can't once they once their hand is in the trap, they're holding on to the you know the the nuts in there or the fruit or whatever's in there, and that because their hand is clenched, they can't get the hand out. Right, because it's small enough they can put the hand in, but not big enough that they can get the hand out. So they want to hold on to it. And I, I thought for a long time that this was, uh, this was just sort of a you know made up metaphor or whatever. But you can go on YouTube and there's somebody who's actually done this, uh, and it's actually it's really brilliant little video. Uh, and 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 they just first of all they just will not let go, and he's completely trapped. And the man's coming over to get him, and this will not let go of this of this thing. And then right as the man actually takes hold of the monkey, he does let go and he gets focused on something else. And that's the key to letting go is we have to focus on the next, something that's more important to us, something that actually is, that is a deeper, better version of what we want to be uh, so that we can let go of these old, these old things that don't matter anymore. Let them go. I mean, th- this idea of not growing up, holding on to the, the 20-year-old version of us, then holding on to the 25-year-old version of us. and not It's a failure to mature. It's a failure to thrive. 
we're trying to win yesterday's battle, trying to win yesterday's version of the of the world. And so, and so I think that I think that it's uh, we got onto the onto the monkey and catching monkeys, didn't we? So that's uh, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but I know you are. I feel like, I feel like that we, we we holding on to all this investment we've made in something, and we've just got to look to the next thing that's actually better, and it gives us the courage to let go of the thing that we're we keep holding on to. Yeah, there's a story from Kamal Ravikant, who's Naval's brother, and I had him on the podcast just before Christmas, and he lost pretty much all of his blood in an operation accidentally. The, his, the sutures burst on his artery, and he basically bled out, and he was anemic, and all this stuff happened in terrible pain. And um, uh, Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It uh, was just about to come out, the second version, and he'd sold tons, uh, self-published, uh, and he was like the... the um, perfect patient zero for who needs drugs and the doctors are like if anyone ever needed opiate opiates it's you like you are the guy for drugs uh, so he's mm. taking them and he gets the first proof uncorrected manuscript or whatever it is back and he realizes that because of the drugs that he's on that he can't view the punctuation with enough dexterity uh, and that resolution that he needs to because he wants every word it's quite a short book it's only like maybe 70 pages or something and um, he wants everything. He needs to craft every single word, every line break, every piece of punctuation, all the rest of it. And he realizes he can't do it. Um, so he, he just stops taking the drugs. Hmm. And he's in pain, but he has something which is greater than his pain. He has the book, and the book allows him to transcend what it is that he's suffering with, right? And I loved that story. And I wouldn't have, I would have never heard it, and I've never heard him tell it on a different, uh, any other podcast. It's just because I was being like a bit nosy about, the pain that he'd gone through in this recent near-death experience. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, it's so powerful. It's like allegorical almost. You're like, look, you've got this, this thing which occurs, which is greater than your suffering. And it allows you to transcend the difficulty of just existing, of just getting through your day-to-day -day life. And that's kind of like the monkey thing, right? It's like, you know, if, if only you could let go of the thing that you were, you thought you wanted to move on to the thing which you truly want and one of the best ways for that to happen is to have something which you know that you truly want so much more because it makes letting go an awful lot easier yeah i was um as, as, as you know i've just uh, just about to launch a, a podcast and, and one of the reasons i did it was because i was talking to one of my podcasting friends and um and he has this great line he says he says success traps are harder to get out of than failure traps <laughs> yeah. and 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 that to me is so such a brilliant illustration of the problem you're describing and and the cure of it is higher purpose it's always something it's it's serving someone else it's doing something more meaningful so you get out of the trap of being so self-centered in life where we're worried constantly about how we'll appear and what we'll do and how we you got to get rid of. I think that's probably the ultimate monkey trap, is just that we haven't got past ourselves yet, and and the, and, and and this is where all the suffering is. This is where all of the non-essential habits lie. As soon as we step out to serve somebody else, I think a lot of that non-essential stuff starts to fall apart, fall away, and we uh, we can get out of the trap. Scott Barry Kaufman's new book Transcend is is precisely about that. He talks about yeah. uh, redoes Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and he talks about you can't. You, he literally believes that you can't reach your fullest potential without serving others. And, yeah, uh, it's spent. Well, so did Maslow. You know. Yes. Yeah, he was talking. Uh, he said. Um, 
Yeah, go on. The story about Maslow, did you hear about his mother-in-law? I think it was his mother-in-law. Um, and he said that he said that um, his mother-in-law was the most actualized person that he'd ever met, and she would she was like just a mum, just a mum living at home, you know, yeah. wasn't the picture of of the the guy on the top of the mountain, you know, just slaying businesses and and driving fast cars and doing all that stuff, but he said she was the most actualized person that he'd ever met. Well, and towards the end of his life, he rebuilt his own model, but it was just too late because it was already like become popularized and everybody, no one's updated it. So the top of his model was not self-actualization. By the end of his life, it was self-transcendence. And and that, that distinction makes all the difference, doesn't it? I, I have met so many people trying to pursue a self-actualized life, and you can feel the absence of some of, of what of what matters so much more than self actualization, as important as self actualization is, and sort of going after goals and just achieving them, but self transcendence, where you really are in contribution mode, where you really are in service mode, to a calling to a purpose that's higher and more important than than our own sort of proximate concerns. This is such. This is the big distinction to me. This is the difference that I'm always looking for in people. This is the difference I want to see in myself to transition to be to live a life of contribution not just one of productivity or just of you know sort of external worldly success that that's that's really what i want so i think i think maslow sort of did appreciate that distinction for the end but then got misquoted in a sense what for the rest are you um do you feel like you're moving in the right direction are you still getting yourself towards the top of this newly extended hierarchy of needs yeah i mean for for me for me when i think about you know it's it's an ongoing journey but when i think about the last almost 20 years now that journey that essentialist journey not just the book and all that but i mean the the journey of my own life has been all about that transition so for me it looks like uh it looks like investing primarily in my relationship with Anna, my wife, and our four children, and really seriously investing in it. Not saying lip service, oh, yes, they're the most important people in my life, but actually building those relationships. So when I travel, for example, about 80% of the time, I'll take one of my children with me uh, so that we have that one-on-one time. Uh, it, it, it means that it means that instead of joining that book club or going to that the, the lodge or the golfing thing or the tennis tournament you just say no to all of that and you just try to make your own children like not just your best friends but also your best friends people that you really want to be with and spend time together with and the effect of all of that has been that the culture that has been created is something really special so even as my children now are like you know three of them are teenagers uh i could not have believed 10 years ago that my relationship now would be what it is with teenagers. Now, I was a teenager. <laughs> I know lots of teenagers. I understand that journey. I've worked with lots of teenagers over the years, and, and I've got a lot of respect for, for, for obviously, for young people. I'm not, I'm not knocking them, but it isn't. this is just completely not like any of the stereotypical descriptions. You know, worst problems are like my one of my, my teenage son is like he, he reads too many books. He reads like late into the night. He reads fiction and he loves it. And it, that's like our, that's my biggest problem with him. 
And I'm not <laughs> kidding either. I'm literally, I'm not kidding. They said they are delightful and they play together and they spend time together. They did, they just spent five hours. This is like a week ago, five hours uh, upon a hill close to where we live. We live up in the hills and they were filming for my eldest daughter wants to be a director and she's do, taking a film class at university right now. And, um, and she's just, I mean, she's 17, but she's like, you know, really like focused about what she wants to do and her highest point of contribution. And, and so she went up there and led a, they took, um, they took a, uh, what is it called? A Princess Bride, you know, the movie Princess yeah, Bride. Yeah, right? Okay, yeah. Yeah, so there's, she had to redo a scene from any movie and they chose a scene from that movie, the Iocane powder scene for those that know this uh, cult classic. Uh, and, uh, and they redid it absolutely scene by scene. It took them five hours to do it. We didn't hear of one problem the whole time. We weren't there. We didn't oversee any of it. The video is brilliant. It's like frame by frame, the same as the original. They were all the actors. They had did the whole costumes. They fulfilled it. Whatever, I think it was fit out 50 points. She got 50 points for this. She just got the results back a couple of days ago. That, to me, is like illustrative. That's like a version of what essentialism looks like. It, it, it was the natural outgrowth of investing in something 90% or important for years and years. And it just now bears this fruit all the time. There's just this flowing of it. And, uh, and so, you know, anyway, I just share that story because, uh, because I think that this is, this is what, what you just said about Maslow and his mother is no, is no throwaway comment to me, right? It's, it's like this is where my relationships with my family aren't a little more important than the next most important thing. Like this is it. This is, this is miles above the next most important thing. And I think most people know that, but they get very busy and consumed with other voices as telling them something else and giving them, you know, immediate feedback and positivity. But those relationships, I mean, at the end of my life, it's completely obvious to me that on my deathbed, I will not be saying, well, how many books did I sell? How many people did, how many... How many books did I write? Right? That isn't going to be, it's just going to be those people around you at the, at the table, right? like those people in the room, that small group, that's who it's going to be about. And so I want to invest now with that clarity, the clarity I will have then. That's a beautiful story. The uh, premier other essentialist that I know, Ben Bergeron, Matt Fraser's uh, CrossFit coach, and uh, yeah, the... Um, very, very well-known and great podcaster who I'll be sending this episode to. Um, he has a number of tools, I think, um, that you suggest as ways that people can actually um, instantiate the essentialist mentality. And one of the ones that he has is a 5 p.m. every day he's home. Now, I want to say I want to say it's 5 p.m. every day that it might be 5 p.m. every day that he shuts his laptop. But um, apparently there's like, he's got a ton of really hilarious stories of like, they'll be in the middle of this crazy important business meeting and Ben will just start packing his bag and it'll be with someone who doesn't know that, that Ben leaves at five or whatever it might be. And um, Ben will start sort of packing his bag and they'll still be talking and they'll still be talking and then he'll be sort of walking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's good. Getting his phone, getting his water bottle. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's really good. Walking away. And then he's like, okay, that's me. I'm off. Bye bye. Like it's 459. Like, and then he's in the car and that's, that's one of his very, very hard points of contribution. I love that story. Love that story. Uh, what I, now, now I, now I want to meet him. 
He's, you would oh, no. adore him, man. He is him and uh, Pat, the other, the other half. Yeah, of- but as you see, that's that's what it is, and 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 I I struggle with that a little myself because I enjoy the conversation of what I'm doing. That's the sunk cost bias. Oh, you want to be in here instead of just you know that's like permission. A story like that helps to give us permission. All of us could do that. We think we can't, but it's because we haven't tried it. Because <laughs> we don't know. Or rather, it might be that we can't do it in the sense that there may be some negative repercussion to suddenly behaving that way. But we don't know because we never tr- we, we don't try it. How can we say it can't be done? We don't. We didn't do it. Try it. See what happens. I have a I have a nephew. We, we, every every week, we, I call my extended family. They're all I've got nephews in New Zealand and people all over the world, and they join in. Um, and he uh, he comes on, and whenever he's done, he's just done. He's very friendly, but he's just like, oh, yeah, gotta go. And he's out. (laughs) There's no like, there's no like false, you know, like uh, false landings. Okay, I really gotta go. And another 10 minutes goes by. I really gotta go. I do that all the time. I'm I'm like professional not lander of like conversations. And he just, I'm out. That's it. We could do that. We, We do have a choice to operate that way but sometimes we need to hear other people's stories to really feel like it could be possible for I, us i think that's the importance of examples you know that's that that's the the importance and we were talking about this before because your new podcast which will be linked in the show notes below and you should absolutely go and subscribe to because i'm sure it'll be great and you've got some fantastic guests that i'm incredibly jealous of on there um, and we were talking about that and talking about just how important sort of fiction stories and tales and stuff like that are, you know? You can take from me telling you about the fact that Ben walks out of meetings of his CrossFit gym yeah. at whatever whatever time, and it's kind of like semi-awkward but semi-funny uh, but wholly respectable. Um, like the fact that you know that, you're like, hang on a fucking second. Like if that is a habit... And there's two ways to look at it, actually. I think a lot of people might discount that and say, well, yeah, that, that's fucking Ben Bergeron, you know? Ben, is he, ben, ben can do what <laughs> he wants. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you think, right, okay. But maybe you're putting the cart before the horse there. Maybe you're saying Ben Bergeron is Ben Bergeron, therefore Ben Bergeron can do Ben Bergeron stuff, as opposed <laughs> to this is the strategy that is implemented by him, which has allowed him to become the person that I think of as being so impressive. Yeah, well, which do we really think it is? Like, what really is logical about that? We really think that somebody became something impressive and then became disciplined. (laughs) Rather than became disciplined and then became successful. Yeah, but I tell you, people say this sort of thing to me all the time. Well, you know, essentialism is all right for the people that are like already at top performers, already the CEO, already the this, already the that. And I think, yeah, man, you this is uh, this is you got correlation and causation backwards here. Uh, you, 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 this, of course, this is how people achieve what they do. And the moment they stop being selective, thoughtful, and disciplined is the same point they plateau and can't break through and continue to contribute. Awesome. So I want to finish off so that the listeners have got some some tacit takeaways about how we can how we can execute and how we can make sure that the vital few things are effortless and the trivial many just you know they 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 stay in the shed. Oh, you just want me to do that? I would love to find out. I mean, if you could do it for me, that would be better. 
but if you could give us some some ways that we can um, instantiate it, that would be that be wonderful. Here's one thing people can start with: uh, they can start with a reverse pilot right now. A reverse pilot, like what is a pilot? A pilot is trying something out and seeing what happens. A reverse pilot is stopping doing something and seeing what happens. Just just stop. Choose one thing that you normally have. Look on your calendar. You take one thing and you, you just cut it off. I'm not going to do that. What like? Um, you, you can look. Uh, okay, I'll do it right now. <laughs> don't know if I can. <laughs> I, have, I have a meeting Sunday morning. It's not a. Uh, it's not like a business meeting. I'm not. I'm not failing this. It's like a. It's like a. Actually, it's a church meeting that uh, that I do. Uh, but uh, uh, that that's out of date. I shouldn't be still having that at that time, and uh, and it's, it's gone. Well, maybe, so now I have to. Maybe it could on. be. Maybe it could be checking your phone in the morning. Uh, of course, it could be checking your phone in the morning. Take take your phone out of your bedroom. You are among friends here, yeah, Greg. Good. You are among very good friends here, my friend. Yeah, there's a, actually there's a. You know what? We should send it a link out with this with a 21 day challenge that I put together. It's 21 Ooh, yes. day little things that people can do. It's better than me trying to go from memory right in this second. But one of them is that right. You have a tech free room. Certainly, your phone shouldn't be there. I once worked with a lady who um, is doing a. Steve Harvey had a t- TV show and he was, he'd asked me to, to work with one of his guests and I went to her home and going around her home looking at where she's at, where she's too busy and cluttered. And, and then I asked her, okay, where do you put your phone? And uh, well, in my bed, uh, in your bed, or you mean by your bed? Oh, actually in my bed, you know, under, under my, you know, under my pillow at night, she sleeps with it under a pillow. And uh, there's two things I love about that. But one is like, it's, of course, it's horrendous. I mean, she really wakes up in the middle of the night. True. If anyone texts or emails, she wakes up, responds, puts it back. So this is literally true. That's the first thing. But the second thing that I think is equally horrendous is, is the rest of us are self-righteousness about it. I'm feeling <laughs> it. I'm feeling story. it burbling in me at the moment. and going. Well, you're, you're probably all right because I know you don't do this, but but there's so many people I've shared that story with who say, oh, it's outrageous, it's shocking. And I'll say, well, where do you put your phone? And they say, well, you know, on my bedside table. <laughs> so their self-righteousness is built upon 12 inches of difference between that story. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And the, and, and so what, what's the difference? There's hardly a difference in that story. I mean, take the phone out. It doesn't, you do not, you, you know, people, people had alarm clocks before they had phones. So that's no, oh, it wakes me up in the morning. Yeah, you can solve that problem in an analog solution. You can have a little alarm clock and the, the first thing you do in the morning doesn't have to be checking your phone. Last thing at night, first thing in the morning. You know, who's, who's owning who? Are you yeah. listening? Are you listening, everybody out there? This is... Greg McEwen telling you what I've told you for two years. And if you didn't listen to me, please, for the love of all that is holy, listen to him. Uh, you know, another thing I think is put put a little nap in your day as, as often as possible, even if it's an 8, 10, most 20-minute nap every day. Interesting. Every day. Why? You are, you are, because, because people are sleep-deprived. And when you're sleep-deprived, it doesn't make you tired. When you're sleep deprived, your the executive function of your brain goes down. So you 
can't discern properly between what's important and what's not important. So the busyness cycle continues. So sleep is, of course, it's restorative and all of these things, but high performers as a general rule and also as the research supports, Eric Anderson's research about top performers suggests that not only do they spend more focused time working on like one area of expertise, but he also found that the number two, in fact, most correlated item to distinguish the most, the top performers from the average performers is the amount of sleep they got. Though the top performers slept on average eight and a half hours in every 24 hour period, 8.4 if I remember right. And they took more naps as well. Uh, because every moment they were actually practicing or doing their work, they were really focused. And that's what the sleep and the naps allowed them to do. So it's not just the number of hours you're doing a thing. It's the number of focused hours you're doing that thing. And so, you know, yeah, take a nap for sure. I have Here's, a, another, here's another thing. I, I got more. I, I've got, a, I've got a, 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 what would you say, a confession to make before you do that. I was listening, I was listening to you and Tim Ferriss in the garden today, having a little sunbathe, which is why I'm just slightly pink, so I'm going to get Video Guy Dean to bring the saturation down on my, my side <laughs> of the video. Uh, and I fell, I fell asleep for a roundabout sort of... It was beautiful. It was real engaging, really interesting. But I just... <laughs> It was just a fifteen, fifteen, a little fifteen minute, and then I got woken yeah. up. I got woken up by the ice cream van. Um, yeah. So it was perfect, but I, you know, I just felt I'll put it in there. So yeah, what, what else we got? What's no, next? but that's that's the whole point. Is of course you needed that little sleep. Of course that was better. Is that's better use of your time of your preparation was taking that nap than spending those twenty minutes just listening to more stuff. You were more alert, more able to be here. Um, okay, next thing. Every day, make your list of like, you know, whatever, six things, main things you're going to do, three things business, three things personal. Make that list every day. Don't work from a to-do list from yesterday. That won't do because so much has already changed over the last 24 hours. Just every day write it out. Put it in priority order. And then I only joke, half-jokingly say this, cross off the bottom five. Right? Like that top thing is, if you've done it right, is so important. You really need to spend the energy on that until that's done. And once you've got that resolved, then, of course, you can move on to item number two. That simplest prioritization process, it's not like that's so hard. Actually, it's pretty relatively easy, but people don't always do it. And if you're not doing it, start doing it. Because the, 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 the return on investment of getting the most important thing done every day over a period of even three months or six months, or, of course, then, of course, 50 years, is immensely different. That's, that's what, one more practical thing that people can do. That's like a, a microcosm, a to-do list microcosm of the essentialist philosophy, I guess, isn't it? Brought right down to, although it would be, it would be 10 things. It would be 10 things and cross off the bottom nine, I guess, technically. <laughs> you've, you've overlapped a little bit with those. Oh, yes, if you went 90% to 10, yeah. yeah. I, I hit, uh, that's right. I like that. Okay, I can say it. 10 things we'll do down to, down to the one. That, that's the idea. And, and that, that simple, that simple uh, step each day is like essentialism at the cutting edge of execution. Because what you want to know each morning when you've gone through that process is what's important now. You know, that's the win. What's important now, and it's the top item on that list, and you work on it. And then once you've done it, you have permission to move on to the next item. Every day, every day, every day, you go through this process. You'd be amazed at how much you can accomplish of the things that matter if you aren't trying to go from some very generalized list or even just a mental list that you have, all this clutter that's in your mind, 
you're just actually working. I mean, I literally have mine. I won't show it because it's you know, personal things, but I literally have it. I'll show it very briefly. Yep, got you. Got you. I can see it. Uh, I do it on huge pieces of paper, actually, always in Sharpies. That's my method. Uh, I imagine, do you hold the pen like this as well? I imagine <laughs> that's the way, like a spear. Very basic. Yeah. Very essentialist. One, uh, two. Yeah, I, I love having it, and I love throwing it away at the end of the day, doing it again the next day, so that you're always actually focused on what's important now, not what was even important yesterday or a week ago. I notice you haven't used the word urgent once there. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not... I mean, I want to give urgency to the things that are important, not let the urgent things, regardless of their importance, consume me. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, that's true. Um, maybe to a fault, uh, but I, I definitely distrust the urgent things yeah. in general. Um, if other people are doing them, if they're urgent, I just have a, you know, my spidey sense is like, ah, don't think so. Probably not for me. Uh, I, I want to take. I want to take the path less travelled. I want to take the path that only I can take. Right. I want my children. My. I want each of my children to take the path that only they can take. Their unique and essential mission in life. And 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 I think that can be introduced at any age. So even though it's not that tactical, I think the questions. I was just talking to David Allen. On, on my podcast and uh, this week. And he said, uh, we, we talked about all sorts of things. He, he has this thing. He says, um, there are six horizons of import, like, you know, six horizons of, of prioritization. Number, like highest level, number six is your life's goals. And then it goes down all the way down to like zero is like what you do right now. So it's just time horizons. And then we got talking about this and, and I started realizing there might be a seventh horizon, you know, above life goal. And we got talking about that. I won't get into all the, the, the interesting conversation behind it. But in the end, his end point was he said, he said, yeah, he said the real questions we need to ask aren't uh, horizon six, basically agreeing that there is horizon seven, that he's never addressed in any of his books or anything. And he summarized those two questions as who am I and why am I here? And as I listen to those questions, I think, yeah, if you never ask those questions, the stuff on your to-do list, the stuff in your mental list could be completely wrong directional. So essentialism isn't just about doing more stuff efficiently. It's about doing more of the right things. And so it presupposes that first you are actually asking those questions, that you're not doing it once in a blue moon when you, you, know, you have some deep conversation around a fireplace somewhere and you're three hours and oh who am i what am i here and then forget it all no actually you're like leading with that that's the work of life every day you're going what am i supposed to do who am i am i we taught that to our children so our children when when, when our eldest was she figured out she wanted to be a director when she's like 10 years old maybe, maybe she was 12 but she was really got it by that point and she'd spent a couple of hours one night answering asking these questions well who am i and why am i here and what do i want to do and what's my hundred year vision literally because that's like what we were talking about with her really that's really legit and and she she wrote she wrote this whole note and put it under our bedroom door we got it the next morning it's just all this she knew she'd figured it out this is what i want to do and she's been just able to focus so much on that ever since 
Think of how fast you would accelerate if you knew that from the time you were 10, 11, 12 years old. <laughs> she's so she's done internships. I mean, she's at university by the time she's six, 16 years old. She's graduated high school early. She's at university 16, 17. She's taking classes in. She's Think of how focused that clarity has allowed her to be and how much she's learning and understanding. Internships for all sorts of companies and stuff, being on set, learning, helping to see from shots and angles. Anyway, I just think that that's like a pretty, it feels very high level, but it's a very practical thing to start asking those questions now and tying it to your to-do list each day and look what you can become. But that is how you spend your life, right? The actions that you take every single day will contribute to the micro achievements, will contribute to the medium-sized achievements. And that over time compounded is how you are spending your life. And to loop it back to one of the first things that we said is you don't have the choice to not spend your life. Because yeah. Your life is going to be spent for you, whether you choose to do it consciously or whether you allow the societal norms and your predispositions and your genetic heritage and you're dealing with trauma and all of those sorts of the baggage and the things that you've brought with you to determine that for you. And the best that you can hope for is to be the smartest rat in the room if you don't work out what's going on. You can, be, you can be a rich, successful, or famous slave, and that is the best that you can hope for. And, uh, I love that. Smartest rat in the room. It's brilliant. I think, I think one of the highest praises, but also one of the things I've found least so saddest to since writing Essentialism is how many people will write to me or make a comment online saying, I wish I'd read Essentialism 20 years ago, 30 years ago, as much as 50 years ago. Isn't that, there's something very, you know, sad about that. Are you quite an empathetic person? Am I? Yes. Um, I certainly, I certainly feel for people. I certainly, uh, I certainly care about people. Um, and my wife is is an empath, so she's like very, very strong in this regard. And so I've always got like a high standard. Uh, to, to sort of if I'm comparing against, but uh, but I certainly feel for those people, uh, and and the sense of the sense of how early could we get to the point where we're asking these questions? We're never going to regret that. We may regret lots of things, but we're never going to regret having started as an essentialist right now. You know, we're not going to get to the end of our lives. Oh, I just should have spent more time on Facebook. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, I just uh, I should I should have worried what everybody thought about me. I should have spent more time judging everybody else. Just spent more time in email. Oh, I want my e I want my tombstone to re read. He checked email. You know, we're never <laughs> these are like all ridiculous, aren't they? Uh, but but so, so I I really want you know on that day to have decided on this one to live and lead more as an essentialist. Amazing. Phenomenal, man. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. I, I am real excited for your podcast to come out. Tell us about that. When, when are you intending on launching it? And can you tell us who the first episode is going to be? Well, the first episode I can tell you, the first episode will be with my wife. That's cool. Yeah, because she's the most important person. That sounds very. Uh, that all sounds very cliche now, or something. Saying that out loud, that's the first time I've said that. But, but really, it's, it's the episode. I, you know, I want it to be called 
the birth of essentialism because there is no essentialism without Anna. There's a key story in the book. I'll get into it now, but a key story in the book as to what launched essentialism that, that relates to my wife. Uh, and, uh, and so it's just, the, and it's the story behind all of that. You know, essentialism is something we're trying to live in our lives. It's not something that we just talk about uh, elsewhere. So I just wanted the priority person to be the first interview and uh, actually like really insisted on that uh, with my production company, uh, with the production company I'm working with. So that's the first person. I don't know who the second is yet, actually, but, it, it, you know, it could be, could be Tim Ferriss, uh, could be Ryan Holiday, uh, could be Ariana Huffington. Uh, there's a, a whole bunch already recorded, done. Uh, I'm not sure the order that will come out. And we're just, I'm just really enjoying doing it. It's the first time I created a class at Stanford called Designing Life, essentially. And, and it, it just for the longest time, I have not had a way of sharing those practical things with other people. And just recently, I finally tried, started to change that. So there is a Skillshare class that I just launched uh, through Skillshare called uh, Simple Productivity. Take some of those practical things uh, and just that, that I've learned, you know, that makes that available for anybody who wants to uh, learn about the, the how-to. Uh, and this and the podcast, that's what it's about. It's about talking to people, having meaningful conversations and trying to give them you know, like you were saying with Ben, stories and examples from people's lives about how they are wrestling with what really matters. Amazing. So what's the name of it going to be? People want to search? Um, the current working title is Essentialism with Greg McEwen. Got you. Uh, and we'll, we'll sure, see I mean, if happens. one of those words goes in. It should you, be all right. Uh, yeah, and you don't come up. There's something, something <laughs> drastic wrong, right? gone wrong, yeah. <laughs> um, so that'll be linked in the show notes below. I will find the Skillshare course as well. And then is the 21-day thing, is that part of Skillshare or is that somewhere else? No, it's not in the Skillshare thing. Uh, if you reach out to me, we'll uh, my, my office will get that to you so we can make that available too. Phenomenal. Thank you so much, mate. I mean, I, I love these conversations, I have to say. This is... I could spend all day doing it. And uh, I think increasingly over time, as I've done more and more of the podcasts, this feels, as I, I sort of low-key keep saying, the closest thing to a highest calling that I've ever found. Um, yes. And uh, Yeah, you're built to do this, Chris, yeah. I hope so. I think so. And I think, I think you know, if, uh, if, I keep on doing, if I keep on doing what I'm doing, I, I really think that me and the little, the little tribe of people that we've got coming along at the moment could... Uh, could go quite far and i appreciate you giving me your time and uh, and being a big a big part of it it's phenomenal man thank you so much been a, been a real pleasure thank you